hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Have you started thinking about your summer goals? Are you hoping for some accountability to help you stay motivated through the summer heat? Join Author Accelerator and the hashtag AmWritingPodcast for a free weekly writing challenge. The 2022 Summer Blueprint Button the Chair Challenge will include 10 episodes hosted by certified book coaches, Jenny Nash and KJ Delantonia. In each episode, Jenny and KJ will give you an actionable step to take to further along your manuscript or revision. You can also sign up for weekly reminder emails to help you stay on track. Each episode will include interviews with other experts across the publishing industry about their writing journeys, all to keep you inspired, motivated, and ready to write all summer long. Learn more and sign up for the challenge by visiting authoraccelerator.com slash writing. That's authoraccelerator.com slash writing. Today's guest is the author of Playing With Matches, Love at First Like, 
and Head Over Heels. She's the deputy editor of Dating at Elite Daily and was previously a writer and editor at Seventeen.com. Her work has appeared in the Washington Post, Cosmopolitan, Marie Claire, Refinery29 and more. She lives in Brooklyn. It's my pleasure to welcome Hannah Orenstein. Hannah, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan of your podcast. Absolutely wonderful to have you on the show. I loved Meant to be Mine. There's so much to unpack here. Before we begin, we want to wish you a happy belated 29th birthday. Uh, your last year in your in your 20s. How does that feel? Well, thank you. Um, you know, I'm now the same age as my protagonist, Edie. Um, and when I started writing, I was not. So it's kind of fun to grow into the ages of the characters that I write. And it's the third or fourth time that's happened to me, which is kind of nice. And lovely to have younger people on the show who've already had so much success. You're not even 30. This is your fourth book. And that's something to be incredibly, incredibly proud of and very inspiring for our younger listeners as well. So, all right, let's dive into the book. Now, you've said in interviews that this was a very personal book for you to write. So could you tell us a bit about how this book is essentially a love letter to your grandparents? Sure, yeah. So I started working on this book in April 2020. And I knew that I wanted to write something I didn't know exactly what that would be. And the way that I found my way into this book was really thinking about all the things that I suddenly really missed and really craved about normal life. So, you know, I wanted to wear real pants instead of sweatpants. I wanted to travel. I wanted to go see live music. I wanted to do all these things that suddenly weren't accessible. And I think we all had that one sort of light at the end of the tunnel moment. And all of this is over. I want to do X, Y, Z. And for me, that was I wanted to hug my grandparents. I was really, really lucky to have my mom's parents still with me well into adulthood. They both lived in Florida. We were pretty close. And so I started writing this book and sort of in there honor, I guess, you know, as a tribute to how much I just appreciate them and love them. There's this really fabulous grandma character, and she plays a really pivotal role in the book. Her name is Gloria. She has this special prophetic ability to predict when every single member of her family is going to meet the love of her life. And the book opens on the day that Edie, her granddaughter, is about to meet her match. And so the granddaughter-grandmother relationship is really central to this book, and I felt so lucky to be able to draw from my memories of my own grandparents and my relationship with them. And then in the final months of me writing this, really just um, the last month, both of my grandparents passed away within a month of each other. And so, I mean, it was awful, but it also was a way for me to really deepen some of the themes in the book. And, um, you know, now it's really just, I'm thankful to have this as like a tribute to them. Yeah, and it was just such a beautiful tribute. And it is amazing how life creeps its way into our writing. There've been critics of the show, and I've mentioned this before, who've gone, just talk about writing, don't talk about politics, don't talk about your life. But I'm like, I'm sorry, you cannot distinguish one from the other. What a writer writes about, what they speak about is what's happening in their real life. It's things that they're experiencing and paying attention to in the world. And, you know, there's something like life writing as therapy and as a way to get you through difficult times. And for you, I feel like during COVID, during such a difficult time, was writing this book a form of escapism and a kind of coping mechanism for you? Could you speak a bit about that? Sure, absolutely. I mean, it was the only exciting thing that I had going on. I mean, of course, we all had so much anxiety and uncertainty and loss, and it was just awful. But the one really exciting thing that I looked forward to every day 
day was seeing a note from my agent pop up in my inbox and she would like have a thought about the book or, you know, I would have a thought in the middle of the night and like wake up and write it down. And, you know, we couldn't do all the things we normally do. So I would really spend all of my hours that would normally be, you know, out and about in the city or seeing friends or anything just focused on this book. So I think, you know, I have a theory that a lot of the books coming out this year are deeply personal because we were all writing them in 2020. And I think that's kind of special, you know, to be able to dive into the fantasy world of all these authors, you know, and to get a sense of what's really close to their hearts. I'm thinking of my friend Georgia Clark in particular, whose book Island's Time is out in June, and she wrote it as a tribute to her homeland, Australia, and she couldn't travel there, so she wrote a book set there, and it's really wonderful. So I think that's something kind of nice about the books that are coming out right now. Yeah, I got to chat to Georgia yesterday, and it was lovely to hear her take on that. Now, in terms of this hook for the book, Hannah, so I'm going to read the flap copy to our listeners, and then I just want to unpack that. So Edie Mayer knows her date. Her grandmother, Gloria, has accurately predicted the day every single member of the family has met their match. Edie's is June 24th, 2022, when she's 29 years old. That morning, she boards an airplane to her twin sister's surprise engagement, and when a handsome musician sits beside her, she knows it's meant to be. But fate comes with more complications than Edie expected, and she can't fight the nagging suspicion that her perfect guy doesn't have perfect timing. After a tragedy and a shocking revelation rock Edie's carefully constructed world, she's forced to consider whether love chooses us as simple as destiny or if we choose it ourselves. So such a compelling hook. And the only thing I've seen that's kind of similar to that was with Chloe Benjamin's The Immortalists. But in that, they go and see a psychic who tells each of them the day of their death. And then the rest of the story unfolds from that as the different characters respond to that. So could you give us an idea of how you came up with the premise and how the process unfolded from there? Yeah, thank you so much for those kind words. I wanted something that could be boiled down to a sentence, to a question that everybody could ask themselves, what would I do if I knew exactly when I would meet the love of my life? And it's just a, it's a compelling thing to think about. I was exploring a lot of different what if ideas and ultimately settled on this one. And I think now in hindsight, looking back, I think there was just so much that was uncertain and out of our control that the idea of exploring this world where one aspect of your life is deeply controlled is kind of seductive. And I think there's something comforting about that, or at least I thought it was comforting at the beginning. And then the more that I lived through Evie's worlds, the more I realized that there's so many more complications that you just can't see coming. Imagine being told that you would be meeting the love of your life just as COVID hit and everyone was stuck inside. I'd be freaking the hell out. (laughs) Did she factor this in? Is somebody coming to rescue me? What the heck's going to happen there? But it just, there's so many questions that arise from that choice versus destiny, et cetera, et cetera. So there was a lot to unpack. Now on the show, we like to give our listeners advice in terms of what generally works well, what generally doesn't work well, things that they should try and avoid because as emerging writers, there's certain pitfalls that they don't anticipate and that makes opening chapters so much harder. And so when Carly and Cece read query letters on the show, if we have an opening chapter or an opening scene where a character is by themselves, 
mostly with very little interaction with other people, we generally say, ooh, try not to do that because then there's not a lot happening and it's all kind of in their head and try and have them interacting with as many people as possible. Now, Hannah, you ignored that advice expertly. So can you tell our listeners kind of how that opening scene unfolds and can we unpack why that scene works as opposed to so many of the scenes we see where a character's mostly by themselves and they're kind of musing and they're thinking and they're not doing very much and so that doesn't make for a compelling opening. What did you do to guard against that? Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Thank you. Um, the opening chapter shows Edie arriving at the airport we know that she's traveling to Maine for her sister's surprise engagement. And as she's walking through the airport, we see her paying really close attention to that person and that person and that person. And eventually, as she's walking through and making these observations, the reader doesn't know exactly what's happening. But then it, she unfolds the backstory a little bit, which is that her grandmother, Gloria, has this ability. She explains a little bit about Gloria's own backstory and how Gloria met her match and how it's affected the rest of their family. And so even though she's not really talking to people, she is deeply engaged with other people. She's really paying attention. She's trying to see, is this maybe my soulmate? Is this the person I'm supposed to talk to? And so she's alone, but she has a goal. The reader knows it's really important. It's really high stakes. She has to keep her eye out for somebody incredibly important, but she doesn't know who that is. And so it gives her a lot of time and space to explore her surroundings and keep the reader invested about when her person is going to arrive. And so the end of the first chapter, she gets onto the plane and a person sits down next to her. We don't know who the person is yet, but she looks up at him and the reader knows that something important is about to happen on the next page. Yeah. And something that we also often say is in our opening chapter, don't give us a character's perception of all these other people, especially if they're not important, because opening chapters are for us to get to know that character. And so a lot of emerging writers do make that mistake. It's like we get the world through that character's perspective and we see all kind of randos and we learn very little about that character, which is where our critique comes in. But in this instance, what Hannah's done is perfect because, because so much of her focus is outward focused and her paying attention to one person and being like, oh, could it be this person? Paying attention to another person going, oh, could it be this person? We immediately understand that this character is searching for someone. She's waiting for something to happen. She's on guard. She's prepared for it. And that works in this instance because it just heightens everything in terms of that. But something that you didn't mention, Johanna, you mentioned the backstory, but what we get is Jonah. Could you tell us a bit more about Jonah? Sure. So Jonah is Edie's ex-boyfriend. She met him two and a half years ago. They were deeply in love. And six months before her date comes up, she knows that he's not really the love of her life. And no matter how incredible their relationship and how strongly she feels for him, she knows that they can't be together in the long run if she's going to be happy in the way that her grandmother has predicted. So Jonah doesn't know about the prophecy, but she breaks up with him. He's confused. He's upset. She's devastated. It really upends her entire life. But she does it with this sense of this is going to make my life better in the future. And so we get snippets of Jonah in the first chapter, and that gives us a sense of how much she's really given up and what kind of a person Edie is, that she is so deeply devoted to her family, to her tradition. She's a hopeless romantic. And so he serves as a reminder about everything she's given up. 
And that serves to immediately up the stakes from the beginning of the story. So we know that there was this person who she had an amazing relationship with, that she was prepared to end it because one, she believed so much in her grandmother's prophecy. Two, again, this tells us so much about character. So she doesn't want to break his heart closer to the time when she meets this love of her life person. So even though it's depressed her terribly to end this relationship, she's doing it. So it reveals a lot about character, but it also ups those stakes. Because as the reader, we're immediately like, oh, should you have broken up with this person? Should you be listening to your grandma? Why didn't you keep him and then wait to meet this other person and then hedge your bets in terms of that? So it, it creates so many questions, tells us so much about character. And it immediately ups the stakes. And that's something you keep doing throughout, Hannah. So can you tell us a bit about your plotting or structuring process? Do you figure everything out up front? Do you use something like Save the Cat? What's your process there? I'm a really big outliner. I don't use Save the Cat or Beat Sheets, but I do sort of try to mark out a couple different points in the book. So sort of I guess that there's going to be 28 chapters. I never write, but I always try to estimate. And around seven, I want some big turning point. Around 14, I want things to blow up. Around 21, I want sort of all to be lost. And then by 28, I want there to be the resolution. And so from those points, I work backwards to figure out, okay, what happens between one and seven? What happens between eight and 14? So that's where I begin. And I begin with Edie's story and the story of her grandmother and her ex and, you know, searching for this relationship and what happens when she meets this person. But I also love books that have large networks of family and friends and career aspirations. And I love when New York City is a setting. So I really wanted a lot of other plots bubbling along with Edie. And so she has her twin sister, whom she's very close to, and she's getting married. And so there's a wedding plot line. There's also a friendship story. There are actually two friendship stories. There's a political campaign that's going on throughout the book that Edie gets involved with as a fashion stylist for this woman running for office. There's a little bit of travel. And so there's just a lot going on. And so I sort of try to think, okay, can I drop for the sister plot line? Can I drop a reference on chapter three and chapter six and, you know, chapter 12 or whatever? And it's just a lot of color coding and bullet points and working that out until I feel like I have something that's usable. Yeah. And excellent advice there in terms of keeping stories moving along. Your main character, your main plot line isn't always going to be go, 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 this much is happening. Because in the beginning, she's looking for this person. Then she finds this person. And so the search story takes immediately a back seat. But then you need something else to step up and fill those pages. So you can have all different plot lines at different times that are keeping the reader turning pages and keeping the story compelling until the next plot point kind of picks up again. So this is why subplots are so important. Hannah, before we, we have to go, could you tell us a bit about your agent and your working relationship with them? Yes, I am very lucky to work with Alison Hunter. She's at Trellis Literary. She actually just founded Trellis with two other agents. She used to be at Janklow and Nesbitt. And she is somebody who represented an author that I really enjoyed. And so I had reached out to her in the summer of 2015, 16 rather, I guess a long time ago, who knows? And she is really hands-on, which I really like. She's always happy to brainstorm. She loves to look over an outline and debate plot points with me. She's really held my hands through a lot of the publishing industry. It's just a lot sometimes. 
She's been really helpful in teaching me the lingo and helping me through that process. And yeah, I just really admire her. I think she's fantastic. Thank you. And last question before we go. You started publishing very young. So was it that you studied, you got your MBA or you did creative writing fresh out the gate and that's how you were able to start working so young? Or was it just that this was something you were committed to and you just started writing young? So this is something that I always really like to tell aspiring writers, aspiring authors. I did want to be a writer. I studied journalism in college and I planned to work in magazines, or at least I hoped to work in magazines after. But I I loved fiction, but I never thought that I was creative enough or talented enough or had the drive or the determination to finish a project. And it just seemed so completely unrealistic to me. But I had this really unusual job working as a matchmaker for a dating service, and I was completely terrible at it. It was a disaster. But shortly after, I was taking a creative writing class, just writing short stories. I thought it was just as a hobby. But I wrote a short story about a matchmaker. And so the class said, you have to turn this into a novel. And I took their advice. And that was just sort of like the little push that I needed. And so I think if you're excited about writing fiction, if it speaks to you, I think you have to give yourself a chance and you have to go for it because you never know what's going to happen. And I love that you told that critical voice in your head to shut up so that you could just sit down and, and write. And sometimes it just requires other people to give you that confidence. And that's why sharing your work in writing groups or with beta readers is so important because sometimes people can give us the confidence that we aren't necessarily able to find ourselves. Hannah, what a joy chatting with you. Thank you so, so much. For our listeners, we're putting uh, Meant to Be Mine on our bookshop.org affiliate page. If you purchase it through there, you're supporting Hannah, you're supporting an independent bookstore, and you're supporting the podcast at the same time. Thanks, Hannah. Thank you so much for having me. And here's a sneak preview of next week's episode. We're beyond excited to announce that the second The Ship No One Tells You About Writing Virtual Retreat will be run on September 24th and 25th from 9.30 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. We have 18 hours of jam-packed, amazing content lined up for you, featuring writers, coaches, and editors at the top of their game. Now, here are the 13 speakers we have lined up. Jesse Q. Satanto, who is the author of Dial A for Aunties, Jill Santopolo, who is an author and an editor, whose book was chosen for the Reese Witherspoon Book Club pick. We have Mark Tavani, who's vice president and executive editor at GP Putnam Sons. We have Lee Stein, who is an author, cultural critic, and book development expert. Alka Joshi, who has written The Henna Artist, which was also a Reese Witherspoon Book Club pick. We have Claire McIntosh, who's the multi-award winning author author of I Let You Go and numerous other books as well. We have Jane Green, who really needs no introduction. Matt Bell, who wrote How to Write and Rewrite a Novel in Three Drafts, who's also the author of the novel Appleseed. We have Elizabeth Gassman, who was an assistant editor for Little Brown and who is now an independent editor. We have Uzma Jaladadin, who also needs no introduction on this podcast. Laurie Grassi, who's a freelance book editor and former senior editor at Simon & Schuster Canada. Andrea Bartz, who's latest book, We Were Never Here, was also a Reese's Book Club pick, and Courtney Mom, who again needs no introduction on the podcast, but who wrote before and after the book deal. So bookings are now open. Please go to The Shit About Writing, look at the virtual retreat page, and claim your spot.
Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Est grew up in Scotland and originally studied psychology and philosophy at the University of Oxford. After graduating, she moved to London to train as a clinical psychologist and worked in NHS mental health services for over 10 years. She now lives in the Lincolnshire countryside with her husband and cat. Her first novel, Little White Lies, was published in 2020 and was shortlisted for the CWA John Creasy New Blood Dagger. Safe and Sound is her second novel. It's my pleasure to welcome Philippa East. Philippa, welcome to the show. Hello. Hi. It's wonderful to get to chat with you. And just for our listeners, I'm going to read you the flap copy before Philippa and I dive into the discussion of that. So Sarah Jones, by all accounts, is young, pretty, charismatic, and full of life, a good tenant. But after three months go by without Sarah paying her rent, Property manager Jen enters the small London apartment to find a radio is playing, a small dining table set for three, and a decomposing body curled up on the sofa. How is it possible that almost a year went by before someone found Sarah, who has been paying her rent? Who was she expecting for dinner the night she died? Jen is determined to uncover the mystery, but has demons of her own to contend with. Dun, dun, dun. 
So awesome, awesome premise, Philippa. I'm wondering if I didn't see something like this on the news a few years back where somebody took a year to be discovered and then they found out that their rent or something was going off every month via direct debit and somebody only figured it out when the money ran out. Was this just purely coincidence or did this serve as inspiration? Yeah, I mean, actually, the safe and safe and sound was based on a true story that I came across through the docudrama Dreams of a Life by filmmaker Carol Morley. It was a film about a true story where this woman called Joyce Vincent had died in a London bedsit. And Joyce was in her 30s. Again, she had, you know, quite a broad network of friends. She'd held various jobs along the way. And she was known as very characteristic charismatic, very sociable, very pretty. And I think they calculated that she had died in late 2003, and then her body wasn't discovered until 2006. So that was the original inspiration for Safe and Sound. But again, what, what's been kind of strange is since I wrote Safe and Sound, and, Safe, and since Safe, Safe and Sound has been out in the world, there's been other similar news stories that have cropped up around the world. And there was one again in Britain recently. And when I read the magazine article or the newspaper article about it, I thought it was like a spoof and someone was ripping off my book because it was so similar, even down to the fact that this tenant lived in flat number 16. It was managed by a housing association in London and it had to get quite a long way down the article until I was like, oh, this is this is actually a separate true story was really quite freaky. So, yeah, sadly, these things do happen. It's not just old, isolated people either. Yeah, sometimes truth is, is stranger than fiction. It also makes me think, I think, is the author Richard Roper who wrote How Not to Die Alone? And that was about people, you know, who are responsible for sort of cleaning out the contents of apartments and stuff of people who die, who don't have next of kin, and then trying to fund their funeral arrangements and, you know, them being buried. And, you know, that was also terrifying to think that so much time can pass before someone finds you. You know, I'm always being terrified that my dog and cat will eat me in that in that time. But it's incredibly, incredibly sad. And just for our listeners, you know, I interviewed a few authors recently for a HarperCollins High Tea event. And it was just lovely to see where authors get their ideas from, how often they come from documentaries or podcasts or the news. You know, so if you're ever kind of stuck and you're not quite sure what project next, take some time off from writing watch some television, listen to the radio, read the news, and it's amazing what will come up. Now, Philippa, I want to chat about your opening chapter. I've actually got three very specific things I want us to talk about today in terms of the craft of writing for our listeners. The first in terms of the opening chapter is there seems to be two schools of thought in terms of how to begin a story. So one is we open with stasis. We show a person kind of in the everyday life going about it in the normal kind of way. And then something happens, the inciting incident. And the other school of thought is just start with the action kind of straight away. Now, what you've done with your opening chapter is we begin with Jen, who's the property manager. 
The opening chapter is actually broken down into three different scenes. We start with her concerned about her son. We see her at work in the office. She speaks to a colleague. She speaks to her boss. And then we see her go to Sarah's house to now try and make an arrangement about these arrears. And the chapter ends with her kind of peeking through the letterbox and seeing something amiss. So could you take us through, you know, we always say everything you do as a writer needs to be very intentional. So why was it that you decided to begin with the stasis kind of chapter as opposed to just throwing us in as she arrives there? This is such a good question. I absolutely love this, not least because I'm a massive story nerd and love all this stuff about story structure and particularly how we structure not only a whole book, but specific scenes. And, and absolutely this question of the first chapter, I think, is really interesting. One of the things that I've noticed along the way is, this might sound like a little bit of a sidetrack, so bear with me, but with films and with books, especially books in the, say, the thriller genre, the start is a bit different. I think that in a film, you can show the reader the status quo for a lot longer than you can in a book. Like a lot of films, the inciting instant maybe doesn't happen until like 20 minutes in or something. And if you did that 20 minutes worth of reading in a book, your, your reader would just put it down because they have to do so much work when they're reading compared to a film that they're just going to be like, oh, when does the story actually start? So I think in books, the way that I tend to do it generally is make sure I've got my inciting incident for the whole story in chapter one and drip feed bits of status, the status quo in later on. So almost kind of start with the kickoff event of the story and then rewind a little bit to fill in the kind of backstory for the reader. But specifically looking at the first chapter, I think it's really interesting. So first of all, what I normally try and do is make the, yeah, so as I say, kind of make the first chapter as a whole focus on the inciting incident. And effectively, although it ends on a bit of a cliffhanger, this opening chapter, effectively, the first chapter kind of builds up to, as its climax, the discovery of the body. So yeah, you're right, they only kind of get to the point of peeping through the letterbox. But as you remember, the kind of last line of the first chapter is the bailiff looking through the door and going, holy shit. <laughs> so you don't know as the reader yet quite what he's seen and what Jen, the housing manager, has seen, but you know that they've seen they've seen something. So I like to kind of build up so the end of the first chapter is kind of captures the, the main inciting incident and maybe some of the key conflict. But I think you do, in a way, need to give a little bit of a run up to that in a story. Because if you if you start like literally with line one, you know, I opened the door and, and walked into the flat with the bailiffs and there was a... Sometimes you can be like, well, I don't know anything about the characters, so I don't really know the relevance of this or the context or why it matters or what I'm expect how I'm expecting them to react. So... I do tend to try and have a bit of a run up to that moment in chapter one. But I think you still need something to hook the reader in right from the first paragraph. So actually, what I think I've done in Safe and Sound is the first mini scene, which is just, I think, a couple of paragraphs long, which is her worrying about Charlie, her nine year old son, is that's almost like a prologue. If you think about it, I've not set it up as a prologue, partly because it's so short. 
but it hopefully makes the reader ask lots and lots of questions like what's the relationship between mum Jen and her son why is she worrying about him why is she worrying about him again you know is she judging things correctly in terms of you know is, is are her worries grounded or not and actually that bit of prologue kind of sets up the the kind of character arc of the of the whole plot so yeah I don't know if that answers the question but that was very, my thoughts <laughs> very much so and you know so we do just in that first bit like you say it could have been a prologue she's worrying about her son and that's something that carries through for quite a while you keep that simmering for quite a while we're going is this woman overly protective as she is she neurotic is there actually something wrong with her son because we then start to see the son in the scenes and we start to try and assess for ourselves you know is he seems fine why is she freaking out about him all the time etc so definitely so even though you've begun with kind of a stasis showing her in her office interacting with her boss and her colleagues you did start with that intriguing bit of information which you know for those of you who listen to the podcast you'll hear all the time cc says we need to have questions in order to keep turning the pages and that's something that philippa gave us there and it's 100 percent true what you said in terms of film versus novels And goodness knows that like in the last, I don't know, 10 years, even more so, people's attention spans are so much shorter. I feel like books that came out 20 years ago was, you know, you had more time to kind of settle yourself into the story and show us who the character is. And by all accounts, the inciting incident needs to happen within the first 25% of the novel. So in Act 1, you have the inciting incident and you have the key event. So the inciting incident tops over that first domino. And the key event is the point of no return for the character. They can't turn back. They have to keep going forward to, you know, do whatever needs to be done in the novel. And many novels had that in the first 25%. But now we're seeing that it kind of has to be in that in that opening chapter. Even if it just ends the opening chapter, it needs to, to be there. And I, I really love the way you did it, Chess. So for our listeners, if you do like stasis at the beginning of a story and you don't want to immediately page one, begin with the action, this is a great book to, to read to see how Philippa did that. Now, something else we don't talk about enough on the podcast is how important contrast or juxtaposition is. And I want to read you a few paragraphs from the book that I've taken out just to give you an example. The gloved officer steps into the tiny flat. The radio is still playing. God knows how long it's been on like that. I step into the flat as well, and I can feel the two bailiffs crowding behind me. I can just about see past the police officer's shoulder. And the first thing that stands out is all the dust and cobwebs. Nothing has been cleaned in here for what months? The whole place is covered with dead flies, a thousand tiny bodies, a thousand tiny wings. And the smell is like nothing I've ever smelt before. Heavy, musty, cloying and bitter at the same time, like breathing in wet sand as if the air in here has swollen into itself. I can see through the arch into the kitchen from here, and there's a collection of pretty cups hanging from hooks under the cabinet, pans by by the hob, and a little plaque propped against the wall that reads, family is the dearest thing. There's a chest of drawers in the corner of the living room or bedroom, whichever you want to call it, with a mirror on top coated in dust. 
When the two officers fanned out in front of me, I noticed the table. The fold-out table set against the far wall. It is set for three with plates, cutlery, glasses, and a bottle of wine all thickly dusted as well. Dead flowers in a vase, gray drooping stems and shriveled brown blooms, and even more dead flies scattering the table surface, dozens of them. Now, that was just amazing in terms of setting up contrast in a scene because you have something like the pretty cups and you have flowers which are meant to really make a place cheerful and beautiful but then the flowers are dead and shriveled and we've got all of these flies so can you speak a bit about that Philippa in terms of how you set up that scene the kind of feeling you're wanting to create by doing that yeah it's really funny hearing those words back I could it's so long since I wrote them I was like I don't remember the chest of drawers did I put that in there I guess I did (laughs) I hope you were thinking damn that's good I'm such a good writer because there were some excellent sentences in there yeah it's really interesting what you say about the the contrast and I think actually I think that in my books in general the type of books that I want to write so I'm in I'm in the psychological thriller genre and I think that a lot of psychological well there's all sorts of kinds of psychological thrillers but a lot of psychological thrillers we have characters that are quite like harsh and brutal and kind of really psychopathic, really, you know, like the charming husband who turns out to be a serial killer. I mean, these are just kind of quite not black and white because often people write them in really interesting ways, but it's, you know, they're, they're quite harsh characters. And I'm, I tend to come at my writing more I, I try to come at it from a place of compassion. And that so even though I'm exploring dark things and dangerous things and painful things and sometimes quite cruel things, I'm always trying to balance that in my writing with a sense of, yeah, kind of compassion. So so the kind of beauty and the darkness together. And actually, at one point, I should have brought it along to, to well, with just audio, isn't it? So people wouldn't be able to see. But I once wrote out for myself the three words that I want to capture in my writing. One is jeopardy. So that's the thriller element of my books. That's hopefully what keeps you turning the pages and being on the edge of your seat. The second is heartbreak. So looking at things which are sad or tragic or difficult or painful. But then the third word that I wrote down was beauty, which is where you come into things like, yeah, love, compassion, resolution, redemption, all of these kind of things. So it's lovely that you picked out that passage. And I think naturally I'm trying to create that kind of atmosphere in my books, put the tragic alongside the kind of beautiful alongside the thrilling. And you really humanize a character that way, because I feel like we've become very jaded as readers. It's like, oh, I look through the people and there is a corpse and, you know, it's just a dead body and we move on with our day. And perhaps if you're a police officer or someone who deals with this every day, it is like that for you. But, you know, most people have never seen a dead body in their lives. They've certainly not stumbled across one quite accidentally. And so, you know, they would have a very visceral reaction to it. Our senses would go into overdrive as we take everything in. And what I loved about that description particularly was 
you were setting up a very domestic scene. You know, there's nothing more domestic than a dinner table laid for dinner with flowers on it and, you know, pretty teacups and whatever are in the kitchen. So it shows that this person was kind of house proud, loved their home, you know, and and we have this domesticity that is then completely contrasted by the thousands of flies, by the dead flowers, etc. And so, you know, for our listeners, when you are describing these kinds of things, always look for the contrast, because if Philippa had just focused on the dead flies, it wouldn't have had the huge impact that it had. Whereas when she contrasted it against this very domestic scene, which shows how completely out of place the flies are. And then in terms of really appealing to all of our senses when we write, this is something Philippa does phenomenally well as well. So I want to read you another paragraph because this is a sense that many writers don't write about. And it really adds here. So it's about a little girl who's sitting there. She's wearing shoes with little gold buckles on each side. They pinch her feet a bit. They are getting too small, but Prin likes them too much to tell mum, who would only want to get rid of them and donate them to the charity shop. She lifts her feet again, higher this time, and they bump into the back of mum's seat. Mum twists around to look at Prin. What are you doing? She says, stop kicking. Once mum has turned back around again, Prin scowls. She has a good scowl. She's practiced it in the mirror by herself, but she wouldn't show the scowl to mum or daddy. Definitely not daddy. She stops kicking with her feet and looks out of the window instead. The seatbelt is tight across her shoulder, digging into her neck a bit. She can feel the shiny clip in her head too, hard against her scalp. Right, so in this scene, we've got a lot of sensation. We've got these shoes that are too tight. We've got the seatbelt that hits her neck. And I mean, I'm such a short ass that seatbelt still hit my neck. And I remember as a child, it was really painful. And even now as an adult, it's painful. Yeah. But, you know, so can you talk a bit, Philippa, about bringing a scene alive by appealing to the senses and not just sight and sort of smell, which is which is what most writers do? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, actually, because I'm thinking about how I write and I like sometimes I read books or pieces of writing where it feels a little bit like the author is picturing the scene as if it's on the TV you know almost like a outside camera and you get quite a lot of descriptions of the action or maybe the visuals of the expressions of, on somebody's face or what's happening but I think when I picture scenes I tend to experience them from inside the character and I think that's probably where the, the bodily se- sensations come in I think I yeah it's funny I don't I've not really thought about this question but yeah I think I think really trying to put yourself literally in the shoes of the character and and experience it from the inside some people my spouse often jokes to me that I'm a super empath and that you know I, I kind of have that sort of crazy amount of empathy and I think I think that's probably true and it can be actually really handy because I yeah I it really helps me get into being the character and how how the world would be feeling and and smelling and you know sounding to them and I think yeah I think it's a it's a good way to try and make sure that you're not you know to think about where is your camera when you're writing even if it's in third person you know because 
even in third person, often we're getting quite close into the external world of a character. So, and I think that's going to make it come across more to the reader, isn't it? That you feel like you are, that's one of the beauties of books is different to say a play or a, or a film that you get in, you have access to the character's head and insides. So, yeah. That's, that's an excellent point in terms of third person, because we tend to think of third person as more removed. But the way Philip has written this third person, it gets us very close. Because once we as readers can inhabit the body of the character, that gets us so, so close to the character. So we don't feel like this omniscient kind of observer anymore. And, you know, I know for a fact that authors fall into two categories when they are picturing characters like Philippa said you either on the outside viewing it like a camera or you're this omniscient god who is looking at your characters behaving in a certain way or you climb into the body of your character and you look out at the world from your character's eyes and I think it's important for you to know as a writer which one you are because both have got amazing pros and some have got cons and if you're more an observing from the outside every now and again try and step into the character even if that isn't your natural setting. And certainly for those of us, I'm like Philippa, I get into the character and I see the world through the character's eyes, which sometimes means that I don't describe my characters that well because I'm inside them looking out. So every now and again, I have to climb outside and and kind of describe them there. Philippa, we're almost at the end of our time. Your advice for emerging writers, whether they're writing in this genre or not, what has stood you in good stead as a writer on your journey to publication and to keep publishing? Oh, well, first of all, I'll just chip in a little bit on the the point you were just making, Bianca, about, you know, in sort of seeing it from the inside or seeing it from the outside. A great writing tutor called Debbie Alper introduced me to the concept of psychic distance, which is basically the idea of it's not an either or. It's not we either kind of a we write looking f- from the outside or we, we're right inside someone's head, but that it's a scale or it's a spectrum. And writing prose works best when we can move up and down that scale. So sometimes we want to be right inside the character's consciousness. But if we stay there all the time, the external world becomes really fuzzy and we don't really, we're just floating around in someone's head and it's it's not great. It gets claustrophobic after a while. But if we're too far out all the time, the characters just feel like puppets going about a stage scene. So we need to be able to kind of move in and out. So I'd, I'd totally recommend Googling psychic distance if you want a bit of um, kind of brush up on that. And, and oh just before you, you move on from that, you know, sometimes there are characters or there are stories that you want the reader to feel super claustrophobic. Like you want them to be so much in this character's head that they feel so claustrophobic. I feel like Joe was that kind of character in Caroline Kepnes's You. Reading that, even though it was hybrid first person and second person, that book made me feel super claustrophobic, but in the best possible way. So sometimes that's the effect you're going for. And sometimes not. So so like Philip has said, do that very, very intentionally. Okay, back to your advice, Philippa. To try and encompass a whole load of stuff in, in, in one answer to that really massive question. I generally encourage people who are aspiring writers who are looking to get published and perhaps make a career out of it 
to try to become an expert in the field. And by that, I mean, just, I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, you're already totally on the right track with that. So I think of it as, first of all, read a lot, you know, get become an expert on books, you know, just read, understand how stories are told, understand what's out there in the market. And you can just by reading, you will get a good grasp of that. So just knowing, knowing the world of books by reading swatting up on writing craft so obviously we've been talking about writing craft today and so much of you know what you can get through this podcast loads of other free articles podcasts courses whatever just learn the techniques of writing it you'll make your life a lot easier than if you just try and make it up as you go along not understanding how to make your writing work for a reader again those of you listening to this podcast are already doing this but swat up on how the publishing industry works so that's obviously you know, learning how to put a submission package together. Obviously, this podcast is absolutely fantastic for that. But yeah, like if you're applying for a job, you need to know how to do the application form, what kind of company you're, you're um, what kind of world you're applying to be in. So trying to learn as much as you can about that will really help you. Don't, don't be clueless about the world that you're trying to work in, basically. And the the fourth kind of way of becoming an expert is is getting feedback on your writing. So not being so precious with your writing that you don't learn how to edit and you you need kind of to get people's reactions and responses to your writing. Even when you're a really, really successful published author, you still need an editor and you can't be a good writer without an editor, even if that editor is just a writing friend of yours or a writing group that you might be part of. So yeah, that you have you have to get that input and that feedback. And doing all of that and then not letting rejection put you off, just accepting that rejection is par for the course. But if you're getting rejected and you haven't done all the other things that I've said, go away and do that before you keep sending stuff out. <laughs> because you might be getting rejected because you don't, you're not, you're not kind of figured stuff out enough. But we'll also get rejected even when we know it all. But you can massively re- decrease your chances of rejection if you do the things <laughs> that I said before first. Yeah. And then excellent advice from Philippa, because I started studying writing seriously sort of 10 years ago and I'm still learning things. And, you know, I, I, I think like in one of my earlier courses, I learned about psychic distance and then I promptly forgot about it. And now Philippa has reminded me about that. So, you know, it's not enough to just learn. It's learn, implement, learn and implement. And, you know, the, I, I don't think the learning ever actually stops. Philippa, thank you so much for joining us today. I love Safe and Sound for our listeners. Go out, get it. We're going to link to it on our bookshop.org affiliate page. Support an independent bookstore, support Philippa and support the podcast at the same time. Thanks, Philippa. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure, Bianca. Hi, I'm Rachel Kranz. I don't know about you, but I love the shit no one tells you about writing podcast. I love it not just because it's practical and gives me real tips that I can use in my writing practice, but I also love it for the sense of community it's provided me, even if remotely as I listen to it. So much so that after my book Open came out, I decided I wanted to pay that idea of building community via podcast and being of service to other writers and human beings in general forward. So I've started a new show I want to tell you about called Help Existing. Now, each week I'll be talking with a different guest about getting practical help on a specific aspect of existence. So this is going to be a show where we address all sorts of topics 
There might be one week where we talk about how to address our fear of death, whereas the next week will be about how to figure out whether or not you want to have kids. There'll be lots of mindfulness. There'll be lots of authors joining us. And I think it'll be very useful to fans of this podcast because as writers, so much of what we need to learn to do is simply to be able to exist and observe and be in the moment with our own thoughts and with reality as it's unfolding around us. But sometimes that can be quite overwhelming. So I'm hoping this podcast will give you practical tools that will feed the quality of your life as well as your writing practice. Thanks so much, and I hope you'll subscribe to Help Existing. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. 
But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another comps session in which we take your questions about comps. Joining us today is Katie Stankovitz from Katie is Reading. That's Katie with a Y. She is a bookstagrammer. So please go to bookstagram, go to Instagram, follow her. We do like to support the marvelous booksellers and the bookstagrammers who are helping us with these endeavors. So Katie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Bianca. I have been a day one listener. So so it's really exciting to be here. It's wonderful for us to have you joining us. So let's kick it off with that first question. I'm seeking comps for my romantic comedy mixed with magical realism with tones and settings similar to Night of the Museum, Midnight in Paris, and Sweet Home Alabama. 25-year-old Riley is forced to head home to her small Midwest hometown after breaking up with her fiancé, losing her job, and let's be honest, practically everything. The blow is softened somewhat when her grandmother asks her to watch her antique shop while she's away having surgery, as well as her cottage, which just happens to be next to a very sexy and mysterious new neighbor. However, she soon discovers that everything is at risk when her high school arch nemesis and the first guy to ever break her heart is set on demolishing her grandmother's antique shop, which she learns happens to house mysterious beings from the past not quite ghosts not quite spirit soon riley has to figure out what's up with her love life and how to save the small town that previously she shunned when i heard this description i immediately thought of paybacks a witch by lana harper in this book the main character is living a normal non-magical life but is forced to go back to her magical hometown for a family obligation she finds that the town is in trouble and she has to save it from her evil ex-boyfriend. There is an awesome, juicy romance, and this was pretty popular last fall when it was released, so I think this would be a really great option for you. And then my second recommendation is A Season for Second Chances by Jenny Bayless. This is a small town romance novel. I feel like there is always just like a huge want for small town rom-coms. Jenny Bayless is definitely the queen of them, but it might be nice to play up that aspect of your book with agents. So similar to your book, A Season for Second Chances has a woman moving to a small town, house-sitting for an elderly woman, and then she finds herself in the position of having to defend the house. And of course, there's a romance, but there's also a lot going on outside the romance, which is one of the reasons I love this book. I love that you've mentioned Lana Harper's Payback to the Witch because we had her on the podcast and I love the book as well. And for our listeners, on the 14th of September, Lana will be interviewing me for The Witches of Moonshine Manor at Bookseller in Chicago. So if you're anywhere near there, please keep the date open as Lana and I would love to see you there. Okay, that is my shameless plug. Katie, you may continue. Book three. Hello. 
My name is Amber Logan, and I'm having trouble finding comps for my novel. The Shadow of Kagetakamori is an adult retelling of Hans Christian Andersen's dark fairy tale, The Shadow, but set in a near-future Tokyo. It tells a story of a struggling author who accidentally sends his shadow away to spy on a woman, only to have the shadow return years later, a more successful man than he is, and seemingly intent on taking over the main character's crumbling life. The main character is an amusing but unlikable man who experiences a negative arc over the course of the novel. I've been calling it Slipstream because of the surreal elements in conjunction with a slight sci-fi feel and have likened it to the works of Haruki Murakami mixed with the first half of Charlie Kaufman's epic novel, Antkind. Thanks for any help you can provide. So for the next book, we have a Hans Christian Andersen retelling taking place in Tokyo. So this one's super interesting. I think you could go a couple of different ways with comps, depending on how you're imagining this is going to be marketed. So if you think it's important to lean into the fact that it's a retelling, you could comp something like Cinder by Marissa Meyer, which is a fairy tale retelling that did really well it takes place in Beijing and it also has that like sci-fi feel. Another retelling that you could look into is The Daughter of Dr. Moreau, which is Sylvia Moreno Garcia's new book. It comes out in July. She's the author of Mexican Gothic, which did really, really well. So I'm sure this book is going to be popular too. It's a retelling of the island of Dr. Moreau. It's also supposed to have like a slight sci-fi feel and her writing always has that like touch of noir and surreal, which it sounds like your book does as well. And then if you don't want to focus on the fairy tale retelling, I recommend looking into Machines Like Me by Ian McEwen. So the protagonist in that book finds himself in a similar situation as your main character. He purchases a human-like robot to impress a woman and then finds himself competing against it as it basically starts to live his life better than he could. And just in general, I could see Mick Ewan's fans also being a fan of this book. So if you haven't read anything by him, he's definitely someone to look into. Wonderful, Katie. Thank you. Okay, next one. Hey, I'm really struggling to find comps for my novel, so here is my spiel. My novel takes place deep in the backwoods of 1792 North Carolina. On the eve of her wedding day, Mary Quinn is attacked and nearly raped by a drunken and scorned ex-suitor. She kills the man in self-defense and with the help of her fiancé, William, dumps the body into the river. William becomes a suspect of the murder and hoping to save both himself and Mary, he flees into Cherokee territory, only to be taken captive by a band of warriors. His past connection to the Cherokee leads to a flourishing relationship with the people in the village. Meanwhile, Mary's home has been burned to the ground and she is back under the roof of her parents. Facing a surprise pregnancy and the scrutiny and gossip of her community, she struggles to find positivity. She and William are living two separate lives. The question is how will they come back together without quite literally risking his neck? My first recommendation for this is Where the Lost Wander by Amy Harmon. Amy Harmon writes historical romance. Where the Lost Wander is a really beautiful story of being on the Oregon Trail and how dangerous that journey is. The main character falls in love with a man who's half Pawnee, and the book deals with relationships between American Indians and the settlers on the Oregon Trail, which it sounds like will have similarities to your book. And then I also recommend looking into Kristen Hanna. I really love how Kristen Hanna's historical fiction doesn't romanticize the time periods she's focused on. They really show what 
being a woman during that time period was actually like, which it sounds like your book does as well. Her most recent book, The Four Winds, could be a good comp for this. It takes place during the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression, so it's not the same time period as your book, but it definitely has similar themes of hardship and longing. Wonderful. Okay, next one. Dear Carly, Stacey, Bianca, and Mystery Bookseller, I'm looking for quality comps for my adult fantasy romance. It's about a young woman who recently graduated from college and has returned to her hometown in Alaska to help out with her family's dock business. She notices that fish are disappearing and later discovers that mermaids are responsible. With her small fishing village at risk for starving, her family wages war on the mare with the townspeople's support. Complications arise when she falls in love with the mare prince, risking both their families and their lives. It's told in third person limited from the protagonist's point of view and is 80,000 words. The tone is overall snarky and dark, yet hopeful and deals with themes of love, trust, and betrayal. It also explores the effects, effects of overfishing and the effects that humans have on the world around us. Thanks a million for this amazing opportunity, and I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts and recommendations. All right, so for the fantasy novel about the woman who falls in love with a prince, I admit I struggled with this one a little bit. I think the premise is super unique, and your best bet is to take aspects from a few different books for your comps. So first, I'd look into Into the Drowning Deep by Mira Grant, which is a little more sci-fi than fantasy, but it's about deep sea explorers who discover people. It was very popular among like the sci-fi fantasy crowd when it came out in 2017, so I think that would be a pretty recognizable comp to an agent. Next, to hit the romance angle, I recommend The Pisces by Melissa Broder. Melissa Broder has a very unique voice. I'm not sure if the tone will fit, but the novel is about a woman who falls in love with a merman. If you haven't read it, definitely read it, see if it works. And then similarly, you could consider the movie The Shape of Water, which won the 2017 Best Picture Oscar and is also about a woman falling in love with a sea creature. And then... In your recording, you say your book is snarky and dark, yet hopeful and deals with themes of love, trust, and betrayal. When I heard that, and I'm thinking fantasy, my mind went to Circe by Madeline Miller. Circe is based on mythology, but I think the main character has a similar tone to the one you described. This book also deals with the intersection of humans and fantastical creatures, and there's a plot about choosing your family and who you love and figuring out where you belong. So hopefully that's helpful. Amazing. And for our listeners, Katie is also a writer. So she's coming at this as well, not just as a reader, but as a writer, which I think is always super helpful. Are we moving on to our second last or our last one, Katie? Second to last. Great. Hi, I am Tracy Ann Plater from Essex in the UK, and I'm struggling to find comps for my debut novel. I feel it leans towards a psychological thriller, but perhaps psychological fiction is more suitable, as nothing in the thriller genre so far has felt like a suitable comp. My protagonist is a therapist with a firm belief that everything happens for a reason, and there is no such thing as coincidence, a coping mechanism due to her troubled past. The mother of her childhood abuser comes to her for therapy, which kickstarts the psychological decline of the protagonist. The story sees her battle with her past while desperately trying to hold on to the belief that everything happens for a reason. The theme of coincidences, consequences and control run through the book. Thank you. So next we have the psychological novel. For comps, I thought of books that also have a therapist as the main character. So first, A Good Enough Mother by Bev Thomas. 
The main character is a psychotherapist whose adult son went missing a few years prior. So the book deals with themes of grief and battling with your past decisions. In the story, a patient comes in who reminds the therapist of her son and she struggles to keep her personal and professional lives separate. And then second, The Hypnotist's Love Story by Leanne Moriarty. This one's a little older. It was published in 2013, but the main character is also a therapist. She learns her boyfriend has a stalker and then realizes that the stalker is one of her patients. So similar to your novel, this book explores that doctor-patient relationship where the patient does have a personal connection to the doctor, but the patient doesn't know there's a personal connection. So I thought that was interesting. And then the last book I wanted to talk about is The Need by Helen Phillips. So in this story, a woman is at home with her kids when a masked stranger enters the house and her path to figuring out who this stranger is is tied up in her work as a scientist and her personal beliefs and sends her down this like psychological rabbit hole. I think The Need will have a similar tone to your book and might also draw in a similar readership. Wonderful. Okay, last one. Hello, I'm looking for book comps for my current work in progress. I came up with some movie comps, which are Waitress and La La Land, but with a case of mistaken identity. I have not been able to find the right book comps, though. So if you have any suggestions, that would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. So for the last one, I needed a little more information about the plot of your book to like really confidently give you comp ideas. But you mentioned that you're looking for stories with mistaken identities. So I came up with some ideas for that. I'm not sure what your genre is, but a lot of mistaken identity books are rom-coms. And since you mentioned La La Land, my first thought was Spoiler Alert by Olivia Dade, which is about a movie star who goes on a date with a fan, but they don't realize that they're both secretly fan fiction writers and they actually know each other from that world as well. Three other rom-coms that you could look into are... My Favorite Half-Night Stand by Christina Lauren, Well Played by Jen DeLuca, and then the movie Love Hard starring Nina Dobrev. Those are all online dating, catfishing, mistaken identity stories. And then for a women's fiction comp, I recommend That Summer by Jennifer Weiner. The main character is a suburban housewife who starts receiving emails for a high-powered businesswoman with a similar name. The two become friends, and the main character starts imagining what her life would be like if she stepped into that woman's shoes. Amazing, Katie. Thank you so, so much for joining us. For our listeners, again, Katie is a bookstagrammer. You can find her at Katie is Reading. That's Katie with a Y. Give her a follow and say hi to her as a thanks for, for her taking the time to do this for us. Katie, we look forward to you joining us for our next comps episode. Thanks so much for having me, Bianca. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday, the 11th of May, from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.
calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.